Welcome, this is Matthijs van den Broek. I'm the head of thought leadership at Online CX Benchmarking ATC Boa, and I'll be your host for today's Digital Excellence Podcast. In this episode, our special guest is Tom De Bruyne. He's the founder of behavioral design agency Sue Amsterdam, where he, together with partner in crime Astrid Groenewegen, also founded the Sue Behavioral Design Academy. He's got a background in psychology and also was a real madman back in the days when he co-founded creative marketing agency Boondobble Amsterdam. I've known Tom already for more than a decade, and I'm really happy we have him on our show, especially considering the great leaps forward he's making with Sue in the last couple of years and on a more personal level, because he's a really smart and funny person to chat with. Tom, thank you for being on the show. It's a great pleasure. And I was really looking forward to this. How are you guys doing at Sue? Uh, hi, Matthias. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, it's it's really a pleasure to be in on the podcast. How am I? Um, doing good. I think <laughs> I'm going to talk in cliches now. Tired of the lockdown, looking yes. forward to the real life again. <laughs> yeah. That kind of shit. <laughs> okay. Um, so in this episode, uh, Tom, uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, your approach on running advertising and marketing agencies, about turning your passion of human psychology into a business. And we'll also talk about the zoo behavioral design method and inspiring stories on behavioral design best practices and there's much more uh, so tom um, i think our listeners know a thing or two about digital e-commerce and conversion optimization but can you help them out a bit and pitch the idea of behavioral design as the way to go to generate effective and desired consumer buying uh, behavior or consumer behavior on a more general level Sure. I think that every professional should uh, should learn much more about uh, human psychology and human decision making. Every professional can become better at what he or she does when they have a deeper understanding of how the brain works, of how people perceive reality, uh, of how people actually make decisions and how you can use that understanding to you know, create better products, better services, better interfaces. Behavioral design is all about turning that, that deeper human understanding into ideas for behavioral change. It's a very structured methodological process. It's a combination of design thinking as a creative process combined with the science of influence as a way to, to come up with uh, better ideas and to, um, to learn faster and, and more profound on why people respond in, in this or that way to, to the things you present to them. That would definitely be the, the best description. Um, behavioral science uh, really is all about, yeah, about deeper human understanding. And I think that in particular for the, um, for the conversion optimization community, I think, first of all, the good part is, is that the conversion optimization community um, really was the first community who totally embraced the power of psychology. I mean, the book Influence by Cialdina was um, was being laughed at by the academic community when it first was published, and it was only in the in the nineties when the uh, when the conversion community rediscovered it that it really took off and that it has now become one of the most influential books on um you know on 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 behavioral psychology yeah because in marketing are, so in marketing everybody embraced uh, cialdini's thinking and also also the book i guess almost well, every every marketeer has read it uh, somehow or especially knows about that, that, its existence yeah <laughs> yeah 
Well, I, did, I think that that indeed it only took place after the the digital community and the digital product development community rediscovered it. Marketeers uh, were quite hostile to psychology um, until 10 years ago. It was only when they discovered that the whole tech community and the digital product community was kicking their ass that they were thinking, shit, we need to embrace that as well. Uh, on the other hand, a bit of a misunderstanding uh, in the uh, in the conversion community is that um, behavioral science is all about using these principles, these persuasion principles. So what if I could uh, add a bit of social proof or authority of scarcity to it? It's, you know, the, the, the best example is booking.com, of course, which is really a masterclass in persuasion design. But that's, that, that's just one part of behavioral science. A deeper part of behavioral science is all about understanding uh, understanding pe- people's deeper needs and people's deeper goals and all the bottlenecks and anxieties and barriers that prevent them from changing their behavior. And that's where so science this, this, kicks in, right? It, it comes on top of the yeah. authority and um, the things we already know, right? Yeah, that, that plus trying to understand the human behind the customers. So persuasion design is all about trying to figure out how to how to trick or prompt the user to to actually click on something and that's fine that's that's really optimizing your chances that people actually buy something but the 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 most interesting part is looking beyond this customer and looking at the human beyond the customer and figuring out what are their beliefs what are their thoughts what are their barriers what are the prejudices what are their deeper drivers and how can i use that deeper understanding of what what makes them really tick uh, to to figure out how I can present my product or service as a way for them to achieve their goals. And that's a completely different approach. And if you combine both, that's really powerful. Yeah, and you say uh, in, in a talk uh, some years ago that marketers are historically bad on shaping that consumer behavior because they're bluntly putting the desired action in the yeah. in the in the faces of the target audiences, right? Yeah. And it's been a while, but do you see any 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 changes that also the advertising industry and the marketing industry is already already shifting towards that more behavioral design and and the approach there, or are they still eaten by uh, by designers? <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. That 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 talk in 2015 was design yeah. eat advertising for breakfast. Yeah. I guess that, that that talk was a bit my own psychotherapy. I was <laughs> trying to figure out ways to get rid of the advertising frame that was that was still uh-huh. um that was with you also my that, agency. that was also with you, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I was figuring out ways to find a new frame to redefine myself and the things that I was doing. Uh, these days, I'm much more, I would say, mild against the uh, advertising community. Uh, there's there's some really nice things about about advertising. I, I also started to appreciate more the real value of advertising. There's this famous expression that goes, never judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree. And the same thing goes with never attack advertising on the things that advertising wasn't supposed to solve anyway. So advertising really is is good at uh, building trust, building distinctiveness, building mental availability, um, uh, reminding people of category entry points. These are all very, very valid uh, functions of traditional advertising. Um, however, uh, there's, there's, there's a whole range of other functions that need to be fulfilled by marketing that aren't going to be and don't need to be fulfilled by advertising, but that need to be fulfilled by complementary services. And I would think, I would suggest that 
we used to think that that we need to put all of our creativity into the advertising part. And I would say put as much creativity in the more in the subtle tactical things. Like for instance, every email that that my company sends to our uh, our customers is being crafted so that people at least when they read it that they have the feeling that they are reading something special. We're obsessed with that. And I think that there's so much like imagine your own email box um, inbox about 90% of all the emails you got a shit and it doesn't have to be that way why can't we use all of our imagination to come up with really better emails and i think that uh, the signs of influence and and figuring out how how our unconscious brain uh, picks up signals how it likes things how it appreciates things how it feels appreciated we can use that understanding to even craft much better for instance email marketing and that's what you guys uh, also do at to amsterdam you you help marketers agencies political political parties governments to to uh, embrace the consumer behavior and the, the psychology part of consumer behavior in their communication and in their tactics they're, they're sending out uh, as a message. Can you tell us a bit about the, the, the Sue behavioral design method and that you're using in your day-to-day -day business for, for your clients? Yeah, sure. It's the wheel I saw on, uh, uh, on, on your website. I, I guess to put it simply, uh, there's, there's a couple of key principles uh, behind the way we, we think about uh, designing interventions for behavioral change. Try to fall in love with the problem of the human behind the customer. That, that's our first principle. So every time we, we do something for our clients, we insist that we interview the audience that we want to influence first. We really want to understand how they think, how they feel, how they behave, what prevents them from changing their behavior, what are other deeper needs and goals in their life that, that are important to them, so that we find opportunities for behavioral change. That's one part. The second pillar is we use the psychology of, of influence to come up with ideas. We try to figure out how can we make the desired behavior easier to do? How can we boost motivation? What could we do to find the right trigger moment to trigger uh, the desired behavior? When is someone in a state of high motivation and a so if we would trigger that person precisely on that moment, our chances of actually getting him or her to do something increase. And then a third pillar is prototyping. Um, we insist that you may have the best possible insights. You may have used the signs of influence to come up with interventions. But once you start translating that, them into an intervention, you always discover that you somehow again missed something because our brain our um, our unconscious brain is a, is a very sensitive predictive modeling machine and the moment I, I i show you something your pattern making machine in your brain is trying to create a pattern out of what you see and we also seem to misjudge what people will perceive when we show them some ID or some trigger. And so we come up with multiple variations to an ID, show it to people and immediately learn why do they respond in a very positive way to this uh, trigger? Why do they uh, immediately uh, show you know, uh, doubts or uncertainty or frustration when I show them something else. And so you quickly discover through rapid prototyping what works and why it works. Mm -hmm. So testing is a big part of the of the job here, I guess. Yeah. How's, how's that testing? Yeah. And how's that organized? How do you do that with focus groups or with with online or with? No, never focus groups. I want to see because in the real world, people don't make decisions in groups most of the time, mm -hmm. neither. So I I want them to respond as a I I want as to, a human to being. listen to their. <laughs> 
Yeah, I want to to listen to their unconscious brain and see how they react uh, and their spontaneous reaction. So we do one-on-one interviews. And for the last 10 months, these have been through Zoom or Teams. And I I simply say, look, I, I want you to speak your mind. Whatever comes in your mind, I will show you ideas on paper I won't tell you anything about it just shout and then i try to trigger more uh, more responses and more you know uh, um, spontaneous reactions to it and by that i learn a lot about whether my my prompt is doing what it's supposed to do or whether it's not working <laughs> do you also uh, use this um, uh, for your clients to uh, to prove that uh, that the concept is working and do, do you Absolutely. involve them in, yeah. in the process so that they can uh, look over your shoulder when you're when you're prototyping because you named it radical testing. Yeah. What's the radical part that, there? Well, the radical part is that every assumption that we have about what is a brilliant idea is a hypothesis, nothing yeah. more than a hypothesis. And so uh, it's it's really essential to the success of of a behavioral design sprint to have your client on board because they they actually go through this process of challenging their their own assumption because there's a lot of projection and assumption and expert bias when it comes to thinking about what their customer thinks or wants or or does there's there's so much projection onto them and by by forcing them to at least attend two interviews and by forcing them to to look at the psychological analysis of what real people the real humans behind their customers actually say already challenges their own thinking uh, a lot and then if you take them through this this systematic process of turning insights into opportunities opportunities into ideas ideas into prototypes and prototypes into tests you kind of it i call this it's a bit of theater you 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 take them through this theatrical experience experience in which they um their own unconscious brain is being uh, challenged all the time and is being surprised and is 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 gradually being convinced about uh, a, a new way of looking at things and it really helps them to defend the outcomes of the process internally because once you come up with interventions that kind of challenge the status quo, you need to be absolutely sure that your client is able to present it internally and to change the opinions of others, which is all always very frightening in organizations because everyone's always afraid that whatever new decision is being made, they are going to be the ones who are going to, you know, get the bullet if the new decision doesn't work. Yeah. True. Yeah, that's uh, that's the, uh, one of the big challenges at, at more corporate organization that mm-hmm. there's there's fear of uh, fear of failing and, uh, and there's a lot of uh, rumor and a lot of uh, applause when you succeed. But if you don't succeed, uh, then you're in trouble. Can you g- give some uh, examples? And I, I noticed a great case of ANWB, uh, the Dutch auto um, a club. Uh, it's preventing uh, smartphone usage while driving, and you also. Uh, did a design sprint for Bavaria for the 0.0 beer, an ideation mm-hmm. sprint that was. Can you give a make it make it more practical for for people what you did and and how you gained the insights, what the uh, what the results were there? I can't tell everything about results, but I can tell you a little bit about about the inside of the process. So the yeah. first one indeed was uh, the ANWB, the Dutch Automobile Association in. Yeah. Who partner up with the um, with the Dutch government to figure out ways to get people to drive without looking at their smartphone? Um, so there's a lot of uh, preventable deaths every year in traffic that can be directly attributed to people looking at their smartphone. There's an interesting psychological observation in the fact that a lot of policy making is done without proper 
understanding of how real people think, feel and behave. So, for instance, uh, when they figured out that by making the fines much higher. So when when you are driving and you are caught by the police when, that you are texting while driving, you get a 250 euros fine. And they dramatically increased that uh, that fine to 250 euros. So what was the effect of that? That people were holding their smartphone lower. So it's that more, if more they, dangerous, right? <laughs> more dangerous. That's what called a perverse incentive. Your incentive actually triggered exactly the opposite behavior. And that's something you see a lot. If you don't take a good human understanding in how you design your incentive, your, uh, your triggers, you end up triggering exactly the opposite behavior than the one that you intended. So we needed to figure out ways to, you know, to to get people to uh, stop using their smartphone while uh, driving. And as you know, in the Netherlands, we have this, I think, four, five year campaign called Mono, uh, which is um, a big governmental campaign yeah. that tries to remind you of the facts that you should drive Mono, only focus on the road and nothing else. And it's Mobile No, right? It's the abbreviation for Mobile No, I, I, I heard. Serious? I, yeah. I, I honestly think that, that the beauty of the word is that it can mean anything. Yeah. I haven't heard that one yet, but oh, it sounds okay. good. Mobile? Oh, oh, no. Okay. Oh, maybe I'm the only that. one. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks this. Oh my god. That's, yeah, that's great. <laughs> it works. It's it sparks your imagination. When we interviewed, so what we always do in the beginning of process is interviewing six and in, uh, six people. And when we did our interviews, we immediately learned something that there's a, a profound failure in the the assumption about mono. So when when we talked to people and we talked them about uh, about using the smartphone and driving they said look you can ask me to drive mono but when i'm in my car there are two main what we call jobs to be done or deeper uh, things that i need to accomplish that are so important that you can ask me whatever i want but i won't stop using my phone so the first one is i need i sometimes use my car as my office that's the only time in a day that i can do a couple of calls or i need to be um, reachable for my family you know to coordinate a dinner at night so no i don't go mono i need to to make some calls and the second thing is all my entertainment is on my smartphone whether I use podcasts, whether I use my favorite playlists, whether I listen to audiobooks, my car really is the only time that I can that I can use those. So no, I won't go mono. When you when you get that understanding, your behavioral design challenge switches from how can we get people to stop using their smartphone to what could we do to get people to configure their smartphone uh, before they uh, start the engine so that they won't have to look at the smartphone again while while driving and if you ask yourself that question you can come up with all kinds of ideas like uh, going from i, I don't know uh, signs in a parking place that configure your phone before you step in the car and then you can uh, you can easily do the things you want to do while driving but you can also come up with ideas to configure or to manipulate your smartphone without having to look at your smartphone and and so a lot of those ideas came out of that sprint and ANVB is now uh, both um, exploring uh, communication ideas like how can we use these hot trigger moments like for instance right before you step into your car you get a trigger or a reminder to configure your phone click it and then drive and how can we come up with ideas that that allow you to configure your smartphone while driving without having to look at your screen yeah people that are just driving away and then they still have to uh, give a, give google google maps a heads up where they want to go and then they uh, then, then they drive uh, to a tree uh, exactly probably, yeah. exactly uh, okay. we're we're all humans
Yeah, no, I have the same. But I thought talking about the, the fine and and the, the height of, of the fine because my um, uh, my girlfriend uh, once had had it and she told it to everybody who would listen and mm-hmm. she was really ashamed. Of course, uh, she just was doing all kinds of stuff and then uh, suddenly there was a police car um, uh, at the front of the car. Yeah. Uh, also, the, the the height of the fine, uh, if you talk about the desired behavior there, also probably the, the height of the fine is this big amount so that the impact on your bank account is high <laughs> and so that you will tell it to all the people who, who would listen. Because, but, but, yeah, but, but, that, but, that's, that's, but that's not the case, right? No, that's not, bad. Not the right way to yeah. go. That's bad human understanding. I think that yeah. uh, uh, the most the, the most brilliant example last year was our Minister of Justice, who is very much into this uh, hyper rational uh, uh, camp, Mr. Grappenhauser. And so mm-hmm. he, um, uh, when he got married, he was the one who insisted on high fines for people who are hugging each other during the lockdown. Because uh, he felt that the higher the fine, the, the 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 better the impact on real behavioral change, and then he got married in June or July, and and he got caught hugging everyone, and it was yeah. a total embarrassment. And it, it clearly shows that, and definitely with smartphones. If you go back to smartphones, smartphones are these highly addictive dopamine machines. They are constantly trying to lure you back into them. There's always this interesting reward behind this notification of a new WhatsApp or a new Facebook. And you can't help yourself, even if your rational brain knows that the fine is really high, the prospect of the tiny chance that you're going to be fined never wins it from the immediate dopamine rush from uh, seeing what is behind that notification. Yeah, that's the bad side of the behavioral design that the big tech is using. That's an important remark that you make. So the the mission that we have as a Suez uh, our, our mission statement is we want to unlock the potential of behavioral psychology to nudge people into positive choices about work, life, and play. And mm-hmm. for us, this is really important criteria. If a client comes to us with a question to, to help them to figure out how to get people hooked or addicted, we, we mm-hmm. categorically say no. We always need to know what the positive effect on people's life would be uh, by, by promoting or by, uh, by buying this product. And if British Tobacco asks you to to come up with ideas how to get people smoke their e-cigarettes some more, because you know uh, smoking e-cigarette is less uh, damaging for your uh, for your health than a yeah. normal cigarette. We once had someone from a big tobacco company. It wasn't British Tobacco? It was another one who subscribed for our Behavioral Design Academy, and we wrote him a "Go and fuck yourself" email. Uh, which was hilarious. He was really, uh, <laughs> he was uh, completely shocked. But but on, oh the, my other, God. Yeah. on yeah. the on the other hand, you're absolutely right. What if um, th- th- there's always this this difficult ethical line? What if indeed British Tobacco would say, we want to help um, uh, smokers to overcome their nicotine uh, habits? You know, the, the nicotine addiction is just one part. You can quite easily get over that, but it's the habit. It's the habit yeah. and the social rewards that are surrounded around smoking together. These are much more addictive. And you could say, what if we offer them something that feels like smoking, that actually puffs smoke in the air, but it's completely harmless. And in that case, you could argue that this is actually a good thing because you can a, you less, can use- a less dangerous but still addictive uh, habit that is that is profitable for for the tobacco company. 
Look, this one is really a difficult one. I don't have yeah. problems with companies making a profit out of people's habits. A, a gym, a gym also profits from people who have who have a gym addiction. The problem yeah. of oh, tobacco yeah. companies is that they have a real history of consistently trying to undermine science, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So because of their it. lobbying and and, yeah. and because they they shared lies in a way. Disinformation right? in, in the public. Yeah. Disinformation and they lobbied really hard. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I can I can understand. It's it's also a, a problem that is um, can talk about for for hours because there's so much so much in there it's yeah. it's health it's it's also uh, people uh, grown adults who can choose their their own behavior and and we also want them to uh, to choose for themselves huh? yeah uh, we don't want to have a government that is telling you uh, um, uh, what to do so uh, talking about the government and uh, uh, talking about the Ferdinand Grapper house and uh, COVID-19 in last year you must have seen uh, from a professional uh, standpoint, uh, when we talk about behavioral change and shaping consumer behavior in the government communication about COVID-19, what struck you the most? Well, how, how did they, they do it? And when you talk about the desired outcome? Yeah, I would say there's a couple of things there to be said. Um, so first one is, is that I do admire the decision-making process because uh, I, uh, in, in my view, they are really trying to um, to engage in, in, in highly rational decision-making. They are, are thinking in terms of probabilities. They are trying to figure out each, what are second and third order effect of each possible intervention that they are, are exploring. And then they are always coming up with an intervention strategy that tries to be the least damaging damaging one on different parameters. So how can we prevent the IC capacity to, to reach a point of overload? How can our intervention still be feasible for people so that we won't have riots or so that people won't plunge into, into deep economic uh, uh, problems? How can we figure out a way to to make it work until until the vaccination has reached this tipping point? So so I, I had the privilege to talk to to quite some people in the in the Dutch Liberal Party in the Liberal Party and and I, I really see them engaging in this hyper rational kind of thought process and I, I really applaud that because once you are rational you always make choices that people don't like. And definitely in this context, we are all highly, highly emotional about this. So we hate every decision that, that they make. But but I see them engaging in really brave decision-making. That that being said, um, I also see them adapting their strategy based on, on the facts and the numbers they adapt their strategy, which is which is really, really nice. Um, mm -hmm. As opposed to all the, you know, the screaming and shouting and the, uh, and the, the absolute certainty of the pundits out there, like Maurice de Hond in the Netherlands, um, I think that that it's it's brave to be rational. That yeah. that being said, I also think that sometimes the psychological argument or the psychological effect on people or the psychological understanding of what the interventions might do with people might have a, a more profound place in um, in their thinking. Let's get the callers, for example, and the and the psychological 
yeah, the, the psychological need there in uh, right now because they, they cannot uh, see their friends and they cannot go to school. Exactly. And that's already been for a long time uh, uh, right now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I would say so. I, I wrote a couple of things about that. And I think one of the big debates we, we keep having here is the debate around face masks. And the problem here is that somehow people really resist face masks. Whereas in Asia, the default is once you get out, you wear a face mask and everyone wears it. If the default option is you wear a face mask, then you feel awkward not wearing one. And my take would be that uh, actually face masks have proven and turned out to be much more effective uh, in containing the spread than, than we first thought, even just regular face masks. But I think that if we would have simply changed that default into everyone needs to wear a face mask, some psychological effects might have taken place. First of all, if you're not wearing a face mask, you're the lone nut, you're the lone loser. So you immediately feel the social pressure to adapt. Second one is we might have have had more uh, opportunities to, for instance, to keep some keep restaurants a bit longer open, to be more prudent with um, with with youngsters visiting their friends, to open up college because this this year, I mean, some of our ba- we have two babysits and they're all in their first year in in university. Yeah, this has been a completely bizarre year for them. They can't hook up with people. They can't uh, make friends. They can't uh, explore. There was no introduction. No, yeah, they yeah, didn't yeah. get to meet their peers. No, yeah. it's terrible. Yeah, and 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 that that's driving them into reckless behavior. And I think that there might have been some beneficial psychological and behavioral effects in changing the default to uh, face masks, uh, yeah. that would allow us to do some of the things that are really are valuable to us. Hey, uh, Tom, um, uh, let's talk a bit about uh, you and um, uh, managing companies. I'd also love to hear a business failure that you learned the most from, from a more practical side. Uh, Do you got an example of something that you completely missed that that you learned massively from? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I found it together with my wife, Astrid, we found it too in 2011, but I can honestly say that I became an entrepreneur in 2017. So before, between 2011 and 2017, we were just a couple of enthusiastic uh, uh, people um, hiring other people to get the work done, but we weren't building a company. And uh, we both were frustrated for uh, a while um, because we couldn't figure out how to escape this 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 advertise, advertising paradigm. We didn't want to be an advertising agency, but somehow we ended up being advertising agency. Whereas we saw that all the interesting things uh, that we cared about were going on outside the advertising agency industry. So everything related around, indeed, conversion optimization, growth hacking, digital marketing. They were experimenting with new methods like design thinking, with psychology, like behavioral science. Uh, Lean Startup was was this whole combination of aggressive experimentation and figuring out how to get people to pay for things. And, And we thought that this combination of experimentation, technology, psychology, that was where the real action and the real excitement was. I couldn't figure out how to frame it. And uh, at a certain point in 2017, we, we got a baby for about six months, didn't sleep uh, for six months. We had forgotten to build a company. Uh, so we had like 20, 22 people on the payroll, but zero salespeople, 
zero account people. And, and I was constantly telling my client, uh, we don't want to be an advertising agency. And my client said, oh, that's interesting. Because uh, you are. I have no <laughs> idea what you really are. I, said, I can't. And so in 2017, we suddenly, um, you know, the money was, was pouring out of the company. Uh, projects stopped rolling in. I was losing 100K per month. And, and we had to drastically, uh, you know, push the, put the, push the alarm button. And we had to figure out in two, three months how to turn it, turn it over, or we would have gone bankrupt. And um, and that really made us um, do brave decisions. So we we had to fire more than more than three quarter of the company. We were a bit lucky to have a, a client who, at the right time, at the right place, uh, actually gave us a new assignment, and we got back to to uh, Astrid and I with uh, three more people. And we, we nearly got bankrupt, but uh, but we made it. And then we gradually grew again. And that really made me become an entrepreneur because yeah. then I realized that there's a difference between having an idea and building a company. Yeah. So, and that's also where the, where the culture comes from. The, it's the getting out there. It's the more structural building on your culture and on your beliefs instead of going into the roller coaster of client work and, and doing stuff. There's so many things to it. I think building a company first and foremost is figuring out your growth engine. I learned a lot from the book, uh, The Rockefeller Habits by Vern Harnish. And the second version of the book was Scaling Up, by the way. So the Scaling Up Method by Vern Harnish. I also joined Entrepreneurs Organization, which is a very nice network of entrepreneurs who do a monthly peer-to-peer coaching. I really validate a lot this this peer-to-peer coaching from other entrepreneurs. I learn a lot from from them and and I can I can actually teach them a lot as well. Well, uh, no, a couple of things. Yeah, um, cool. But we but we really embrace failure and embarrassment and we share that and it's so liberating to learn from how other entrepreneurs fail forward. Yeah. Cool. So that's a that's a great insight there. How do, do does your um, behavioral design uh, methods and uh, and psychology insight in in the best possible way should relate to the conversion optimization and web analyst teams at, yeah. at your at your clients? Can you share a bit on uh, how they work together? I think that it was precisely the CRO community that inspired me the most when I was fed up with advertising. All the interesting action was going on in CRO community, experimentation, A-B testing. And I really felt that the that the CRO community was a bit the avant-garde of where marketing was heading towards. I don't know if you heard about this, um, uh, this what was it called, Co- conversion... XL, those guys from Conversion XL, they, they organized boot camps in Tallinn in Estonia. Uh, they do that every year. Uh, I forgot the name of the conference. And I went there and I, I was completely blown away. But, uh, but I was also shocked of how much they they are all about the tactics. And the, somehow they, they kind of oppose themselves against creativity. And I would say, if you guys would stop opposing yourself so much against creativity and step out of the pure tactics, I think you will have a much more profound impact on the organization. So the the CRO people that I talk, and and a lot of CRO people uh, do our Behavioral Design Academy, and and they are quite often frustrated because they have the understanding, they have the psychological insight, they have both the combination of design, technology, and data, and psychology to figure out ways to improve things. And yet they are somehow seen by the other branches of the marketing chain as, as the tactical department. 
they need to reframe what they are doing. Um, and I think behavioral design it really is a, is a great frame. People are interested and fascinated with customer behavior. But in order to, to go beyond the tactical, they need to figure out ways to also bring in a deeper understanding of the human behind that customer and not just play with social proof and authority and scarcity, but also say, hey, this deeper need, what if, for instance, stop talking about pensions but start talking about, do you want to stop working earlier so that you can, can benefit from the, the wealth that you created? That's a much different question to answer than the question, do you want to talk about pension? And figuring out what are these hot button words that you should use to, to build your whole funnel that would make them to be the leading voice in the marketing yeah. uh, in the marketing debate. So more in, also they, they'll gain more impact on the company as a whole because they're, they're, yes. they're more directly relating to the bottom line. And they, they also make it more understandable in a way because everybody is human, but not everybody understands the, what the CRO department is doing because they're exactly. also a bit uh, technical and A-B test a lot of data and uh, uh, Google Analytics and not all the marketing communications and the, and the management boards are, are totally uh, in line with that. No, to, no. To make it more, I, I to say, make it more yeah. human, that's, your, that's what you're saying. To make it more human, then they'll, uh, they'll have more impact. I would say to make it more psychological because rational decision makers in management positions, they can't argue with science. And as long as you talk the language of CRO, you're talking a language of tactics. Whereas if you talk uh, the language of behavioral psychology and human decision making, you talk science and you can't win an argument with science. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge for CRO is to talk that different language to have a more profound impact on getting people to do what you want them to do. Also, cool. you're bored. Cool. Tom, thank you so much for uh, for being on the show. Do you have any closing uh, remarks, tips or advice for the marketing and digital community out there? No, no. Learn, read, be voracious. <laughs> <laughs> Stay stupid. I mean, no, no, no. I, I really mean it. Um, I, I still find myself to be incredibly stupid and that drives my uh, hunger to keep learning. If that hunger is not there, I get very, very unhappy. Thank you, Tom. Have a great day. Thank you, Matthijs. You too, man. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Digital Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Matthijs van der Broek. Do you want to know more about achieving digital excellence? Find out more on our website, warglobal.com, and check out how we can help you accelerate digital growth. Check out previous episodes of this podcast and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud.